This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a new book out called How to Get Sued. Bob? And I write a blog called Law Sites, another blog called Media Law, and also Legal Blog Watch for Law.com. Well, last year, uh, media, media conglomerate Viacom uh, accused uh, Google's video-sharing website YouTube of violating its copyright in a $1 billion lawsuit. And earlier this month, a federal court ordered Google's YouTube to hand over usernames, IP addresses, and viewing histories to Viacom, the parent company of Comedy Central and MTV, in an Internet privacy controversy. Viacom said that they needed to they needed general viewing information to determine the proportion of views on YouTube in reference to the alleged copyright infringing content versus non-infringing content. As of last week, Google and Viacom had reached an agreement to allow Google's YouTube to mask important uh, user information from records before they're handed over to Viacom. Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss the legal issues in this case, privacy rights, piracy issues, and what this case means for users, and which is the real source of business for these companies. So let's introduce our guests who, who will be helping us discuss this topic today. First off is attorney Kevin A. Thompson from the law firm Davis McGrath in Chicago. Uh, Kevin Thompson practices primarily in the area of domestic and international trademarks, copyrights, and Internet law issues. He's experienced with prosecuting international applications under the Madrid Protocol and coordinates clients' trademark portfolios in more than 75 countries, including the European Union. Kevin counsels clients in the selection, clearance, and maintenance of trademarks. He advises them with respect to enforcement of rights and assists in representing them in disputes around the world to protect their valuable IP. Kevin is the author of the legal weblog Cyber Law Central, which is located at www.cyberlawcentral.com. And with the tagline, The Digital World, Its Impact, and Legal Framework as Its Guide, Cyber Law Central focuses on the legal implications of the Internet as well as its impact on society. Uh, topics on the weblog include security issues, Internet governance, and recent cases. Welcome to the show, Kevin Thompson. Well, thank you for having me. Our next guest, Bob, is Lauren Gelman. She's the executive director of Stanford Law School's Center for Internet and Society, and she's a lecturer in law at the law school. Her research focuses broadly on all areas of Internet law, including privacy and surveillance, virtual worlds, the power of new technologies to enhance democracy and free speech. Prior to joining the Center for Internet and Society in 2002 as its associate director, she was the corporate counsel for Real Names Corporation. She spent six years before that in Washington, D.C. as the public policy director for the well-known Electronic Frontier Foundation and as the Associate Director of Public Policy for ACM, the largest association of computer scientists in the world. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Thank you. Well, let's start off by asking each of you for uh, your perspectives on uh, the developments last week with respect to the agreement between Google and Viacom to mask uh, users' names. Uh, Lauren, do you see this as a, as a significant development? Um, I think it is. Uh, it would have been more significant if... Um 
parties had the opportunity to appeal this and get uh, a, a different different judge's ruling on the question. But the issue of whether IP addresses are private or not is a is an important question that impacts all different areas on the internet. And the fact that these two companies settled this agreement so that IP addresses and other identity identifying information about YouTube view, viewers will be protected um, is 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 a very good sign that they recognize the importance of this question. Kevin, how are you? Your perspective on that case? Well, I agree with Lauren. I think uh, it's it's very interesting that uh, they were able to settle this by uh, removing some of the user data um, that seems to have uh, quelled some of the, the initial privacy concerns. Um, I think there's still a you know decent chance that uh, somebody uh, looking at the rest of the data might still be able to piece together some of who some of the user identities are. Uh, similarly, what happened to, to uh, I believe it was AOL in a recent case. Um, but uh, beyond that, uh, I believe... Um, uh, it's definitely a step in the right direction, but I agree with Lauren. I think uh, it would have been great to have uh, uh, another judge take a peek at whether or not uh, they were even required to turn these over in the first place. Isn't really the issue of IP addresses, whether they're private or not? I mean, you both have experience with blogging. Uh, I know from my blog site that when a visitor comes on my site, I can see that visitor's IP address. So h- how does it turn into private? Well, um, you know, there's. I think there's a difference between when the user comes to your site and is making a choice to view it and you're able to see that information and then you're turning that information over to a third party for a completely different purpose. So this question of IP addresses has come up in many contexts. It's come up, for example, with regard to behavioral advertising and collection of IP addresses. Um, It's come up Many in many of these cases where uh, somebody is trying to get the identity of a poster who said something nasty about the company and wants to track them down. The thing about IP addresses is that they are both a unique identifier in that they can you can gather lots of different information about a person or a computer because you can track that IP address as they go all around the web, use different applications, visit different websites. Um, So while you might have an IP address of somebody that's different than being able to coordinate it with other actions of that person, and um, like I said, it's different than turning that information over to a third party or then contacting a ISP, for example, to try to find the identity attached to the IP address. So I think that that's one of the main concerns is that the IP address is assigned by an ISP who, because of, you know, you're paying with a credit card, knows the identity of the person behind that IP address. So the ability to peek through what is just a string of numbers to find an actual person is, um, is, is, is the harm that people are trying to prevent by saying that the IP address, because of that link, um, should be given uh, maximum privacy protections. But isn't there a body of law out there that says that when a crime is committed, privacy goes out the window? No, I mean, no, I don't think privacy ever goes out the window. I think there, there are situations where 
you know, the government's able to demonstrate a need to pierce through a, um, a, 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 an anonymous, you know, use to find the person behind it, but we have a whole set of statutory and constitutional protections for accessing that information. Um, those don't come into play when we're talking about a company like Viacom, but there still are other statutory privacy protections like the um, Video Privacy Protection Act that come into play here. So I would never say that privacy goes out the window. I would just say that sometimes parties can demonstrate a compelling need to get the identity of somebody. But that's traditionally something that uh, we have pr legal processes for and courts to oversee to make sure that that power isn't abused. Well, and we don't have a crime here. We're talking about a, a civil action. And I mean, I had trouble figuring out uh, which side to root for in this case. I mean, I felt that, that Viacom was perhaps overreaching in its in its request, but I, I can't help but wonder what the heck Google is doing with all this information. Why does Google feel that it's necessary to maintain logs going back a year of, of what people are looking at online. I don't understand that. Well, I think personally what uh, what they're trying to do with it is they're trying to get as much data as they possibly can. Uh, they're, they bought this with the idea that they were going to develop it into something that they could later monetize. Uh, and they've certainly tried to, to monetize YouTube by uh, selling advertisements. Um, the problem with that, though, is there's so much other content that's out there on the site that uh, a lot of advertisers really don't want their ads associated with, um, you know, videos of people eating lunch or uh, <laughs> some other sorts of videos that are like that. Um, but it, it's certainly something I think they, they're, they're looking at as a longer-term project. Well, So did you find yourself rooting for one side or the other on this case, Kevin? Well, I certainly can sympathize uh, with, with both parties. Um, I'm... Uh, certainly one that uh, I would like to see how this this will end out. Uh, I do believe this is why uh, why this case is is why Google bought YouTube because I believe they wanted to control how this question was resolved. Did uh, they knew that one way or the other this lawsuit was coming, and uh, they wanted to be on the side of uh, the one that helped determine uh, how it came to be. Um, if you read the original order that the judge issued, uh, you'll see just how far-reaching uh, Viacom's request was. Uh, I mean, they, they asked for the crown jewels. They even wanted uh, Google's um, uh, proprietary code for its underlying search engine, um, you know, which is you know, their ultimate trade secret. Uh, they wanted everything, and this is some, something that got pared down in this limited request. Uh, that was actually granted by the judge, but you know they originally wanted a whole bunch of stuff. I think I think one of the interesting things in this case is um, that you know the, one of the things that the judge relied on in finding that IP addresses were not secret was statements that Google itself has made on its policy blog and elsewhere to that effect. Google's official company position is that IP addresses are not, are not private information, and I think that's, you know, what we just heard. It's because of their interest in, in, in monetizing and the fact that, at essence, Google is a very large advertising agency and makes, you know, a significant amount of its money from being able to 
match ads with user interest. So um, one of the reasons I think that this case ended up settling was because Google really wasn't the true party in interest to represent user rights here um, because they take the position that this information isn't private. And I think um, Viacom didn't want a copyright lawsuit to become clouded by this extra privacy issue. So I think that this is why we saw the two parties settle um, and in conjunction with uh, some excellent you know, work on this issue by the Electronic Frontier Foundation because if they hadn't settled, there would be a lot of other people, um, myself included, who would be interested in getting involved in this case in some way to represent the users because it's their privacy interest that was at stake here. And, you know, unlike the way we think about traditional litigation with where each party is the best, uh, the best entity situated to, to fight for the rights on each side, here there was no party that was really representing the users of YouTube, and those were the people whose identity would be released as a result of the judge's original order. So I agree. I found it very hard to think about who I was who I was in favor of in this case because um, while on, on on its face, you know, as a as a privacy advocate, I would want Google to win. It wasn't because you know Google is an entity who uh, adopts privacy policies across the board in their company that I, I I approve of. It was simply because in this particular litigation, it was in their interest to have this data be protected. Well, I think one thing also to keep in mind, too, is uh, just how important an, an IP address really is in helping figure out identity. Um, one of the best analogies you can give right now Another controversy that's going on is the the recording industry lawsuits against individual users for file sharing. And many of the times, the first uh, action is a discovery lawsuit where uh, all they've got is the IP address, and uh, they serve that notice on the Internet service provider that they've got to turn this uh, user information over to them. Um, and so... Uh, it's it's very easy, um, and these uh, companies uh, like uh, the recording industry are used to and proceeding in a mass way to figuring out user identities based on little more information than just the IP address. Well, I mean, sooner or later, the, these issues are going to have to be addressed uh, by the courts. I mean, they they sidestepped that that happening here through this through this agreement they reached, but uh, you know, eventually. This question, uh, I mean, this question is going to hang out there until a court decides it, is, is I guess what I'm saying. And, and would this have been a, a good case to to have uh, let a judge uh, sort through these issues? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think this would be, would have been a really good case for this. In the United States, we have what many refer to as a silo approach to privacy, which is to say we protect different pieces of information with different privacy rules rather than, uh, for example, in the European Union or in other uh, countries where they have more general uh, privacy laws. Here we had at issue um, video, which is protected under the um, Video Privacy Protection Act, and 
there, because we have very strong protections for video, um, basically as a result of a um, Supreme Court nomination hearing of Robert Bork, where his video rental records were disclosed, Congress stepped in and passed very strong protection to make sure that that couldn't happen to them because it was seen to be very embarrassing. So here we would have been able to have this conversation about whether IP addresses are private in the context of a very strong law meant to protect the privacy of uh, the kinds of information that's available on YouTube, these uh, these videos. But, but Google wasn't really relying on that law, was it, in, in, in its arguments in this case? No. Well, th- that wasn't that wasn't the focus of, of their argument, um, but that really should have been the focus of their argument, which is that... Um, under the Video Privacy Protection Act, you have to show a compelling need in order to get um, information about uh, people who are viewing video material. And even then, if you show that need, you have to first provide notice to the users in order to um, before the so that they have the opportunity to challenge the request. So it's a very strong protection. And you know, as I said earlier. Uh, YouTube had a lot of strategic reasons for acting in certain ways in this lawsuit that has to do with their general business interest and also the interests of a Google as a company. And so, um, you know, it's not clear to me that they really put forth their best arguments um, in this case um, because of these other concerns. How does the Digital Millennium Copyright Act play into this? Well, it certainly plays into it from the point of view of establishing why that... Um uh, Viacom wanted this data in the first place because uh, the burden is going to be upon them ultimately in the case uh, to sort of disprove uh, the defense that's raised by there. Um, just briefly, um, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, Section um, 512, uh, has a uh, provision in there that allows online um, uh, qualified uh, service providers to um, maintain protection for what they do online, provided that uh, they have a notice and takedown provision uh, for notice of copyrighted material that's put on the site. Uh, But there's some other provisions in there as well. And what Viacom is getting at is trying to prove that Google ultimately has knowledge, either actual or implied, that uh, copyright material is being infringed on the site. And it's sort of general knowledge that it's going on there, uh, but whether or not uh, Viacom's ultimately going to be able to prove that uh, in the case uh, is, is really, you know, where this is going to go. And I think that's the area of the law that uh, Viacom was stressing when it, it put forth this request. Uh, but I believe this is also uh, near and dear to Google's heart. This is, uh, uh, this is the major issue that they wanted resolved. When they, when they when they purchased uh, YouTube in the first place. Given that there are so many videos on YouTube and there is apparently some copyright copyrighted material that's up on YouTube, how is it practically possible to police it? Well, that's YouTube's argument: is that uh, it's it's impossible for them to to. Then there's millions of videos that get uploaded every day, uh, and so there are certain automated uh, procedures that uh, Viacom would probably like to argue that they should put forth uh, 
perhaps a watermarking or some other system to, you know, make sure that, you know, the same video isn't, isn't re-uploaded. Otherwise, they, the system that's set forth by, by the copyright law uh, puts the burden on the copyright owner to uh, send, a, send a takedown notice. It's just the way the law is written. I think that um, this was, you know, the, the point Tim makes is exactly the purpose of having this provision in the law, which is that we wouldn't get all these wonderful new innovations that we have online if the companies that are providing an opportunity for their users to post content would be, um, would be immune from liability for that content. So, uh, you know, Craig or Bob, Bob, with your blogs, you wouldn't want to be able to have comments open or other people be able to participate in that conversation if you were going to be held strictly liable for anything that they do. So I think that this is a, a very sort of big issue here that when the law was passed, it didn't anticipate Web 2.0, but that we got Web 2.0 as a result of this um, immunity from liability. And now the question is, you know, how do we balance all this wonderful innovation and the next generation of innovation against the, you know, likelihood that on YouTube there is copyrighted content? And so the system that was designed was this notice and takedown system. Um, it does switch the burden onto, onto the copyright owners to provide the notice, um, but that's why, that's why we have YouTube and we get all the unbelievable uh, free speech benefits from it. I think another thing to keep in mind, too, is that you know, we have built this commercial Internet on the top of a system that was really designed as more of an educational uh, uh, linking system to, uh, to exchange information among universities. It's, it's something that certainly was never, um, when, they, when they originally developed the Internet, you know, DARPAnet and some of the other prior uh, systems that became the Internet we know today, they certainly never envisioned, uh, you know, the billion-dollar industry uh, that's been, been built on top of it. Um, and, uh, you know, this provision that's in the law is, uh, I think, a, 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 a proper acknowledgement of the balancing act uh, between the, the, the two interests, uh, the one interest in, in making sure that, um, you know, we have uh, the freedom to uh, have uh, these kinds of discussions going forth online, uh, on the other hand, balancing, you know, the important copyright interest of these owners. Well, we need to take a short break. When we return, we'll hear more on this case, privacy rights, and copyright issues. We'll be right back. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs. J. Craig Williams' blog at mayapleasethecourt.com. Likewise, Robert Ambrogi's blog at legalline.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show.
A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi, and we are talking with our guest, Attorney Kevin A. Thompson from the uh, firm Davis McGrath in Chicago, and Lauren Gelman, the Executive Director of Stanford Law School's Center for Internet and Society, and we're talking about Google and Viacom. And uh, before we went to break, talking about copyright, I read somewhere in connection with this case that perhaps as much as 90% of the material that appears on YouTube is subject to copyright. Lauren, if I hear what you're saying, you're, you're suggesting that perhaps the, the laws that are on the books uh, didn't fully anticipate Web 2.0 and, and uh, the connected world that we live in right now. So what what is the solution? Do we need new laws? Uh, should it be sorted out through the courts? Uh, will Will this case, as it moves forward, provide some answers? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, you know, the copyright industry has been very reluctant to innovate to um, change their business models to deal with the reality of the Internet. And I think that, um, you know, the, I, I have no idea what, what, what the numbers are about infringement, but it's I do have some I sense that it's a legacy of a long period of time where, Users were confronted with a new technology that allowed them to do things that they wanted to do, and the industry's, um, you know, failure to, to to answer user demand. So, my 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 sympathies for the you know conundrum that they find themselves in now are you know somewhat minimal. Um, I think that you know the law that we have now has um, you know given us YouTube. And I'm skeptical whether we would have had YouTube if we had to wait for um, Viacom to 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 produce it. And so I think that you know you know one way of looking at this is to say that the you know we need to change the laws to continue to protect their current business models. Another way to say this is that you know the laws create a good balance here to give us the kind of innovation to meet user demand, and it's. You know, it's really up to Viacom to figure out ways to um, deal with the um, ability, the 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 accessibility of YouTube. I mean, you know, you can always harken back to the the arguments about you know the video cassette recorders and how the industry fought those, and now they make um, mo- most of their money from uh, video rentals. So I, you know, I mean, I just think that this is like a combination of industry innovation that and new commerce to markets that are able to create new ways of doing things, and you know, keeping the law so that it creates an adequate balance between those two things. And I think the law, you know, is doing that. So, the, so the industry has to adapt more than the law does, is what you're saying? Yeah, I think I, I think I think that's true. 
What about users? Do they have any rights? I mean, is it possible? I, I know you can't do it on, on YouTube right now, but should Google be required to include some type of opt-out provision to say, I, you know, if you're a user, I don't want my information gathered? Yeah, you know, I am, I am very much in favor of, you know, opt-out regulations. And, in fact, there's actually been um, hearings recently on in Congress about um, collection of information in, in the advertising context, which would require opt-out um, models for the types of behavioral advertising and ISP advertising that we see coming down the line. So I think there is um, a strong trend towards thinking about opt, um, opt-in models, excuse me, to um, for people to choose whether they do want their information to be collected, um, assuming that they get benefits from that. And a lot of people do. I mean, all the moves you see, for example, to have a personalized Google site. In some sense, you are opting into having your information collected because Google needs to know who you are and some things about you in order to serve you personalized content. So I think there are a lot of reasons that people might want to opt into having their information collected. Um, the default we have out there that all this information is collected and then companies can do with it as they please, I think is just not a sustainable model as more and more people become aware of the fact that even though they think they're acting on the Internet anonymously, they really are being tracked. Well, it is pretty scary stuff as I sit down to Google and I'm using Google Docs and Google Calendar and Google Spreadsheets and Google Presentations and searching on Google and everything else and thinking to myself, Wow, they have quite a record of everything I'm doing. I mean, how concerned should should the public be about this, Kevin? Well, I believe uh, that um, they should be somewhat concerned. Uh, as, as more and more of uh, things go online, uh, they're only um, a subpoena away from having their 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 information released. Um, I agree with uh, Lauren that uh, you know opt-in provisions um, are. A necessity, uh, but I believe that uh, you know if you look at many of the terms of service that you agree to when you get into using uh, Google Docs and so forth, you're agreeing to Google's use of this information uh, for Google's purposes. Uh, but at the same time, you're acknowledging that uh, they may have to turn the information over in in response to a subpoena or other court order, which is what happened in this case. Do we really need to worry about privacy concerns, though? I mean, isn't at some point, you know, maybe Bob Ambrosia and Craig Williams and Lauren and Kevin use Google, but you know, so do millions of other people. Isn't it at some point we just become a statistic rather than a piece of uh, information that someone's going to do something with? Well, that leads into one of the uh, my interesting uh, points on the case uh, is that, you know, this information is out there, and now Viacom is going to have it once it's finally produced. And, you know, they're going to turn it over to their experts, and they're going to try to take uh, this information and try to prove as much as possible the numbers in such a way that it make it look like uh, that YouTube had to have known that there was infringement going on as a result of all this user activity. And, uh, you know, I can certainly see that coming. At the same time, uh, you know, Google is going to be trying to do the same thing to reduce the impact of those numbers. Um, I was recently reminded of, um, you know, the problems of using statistics to to prove things. Uh, There was a a, a great uh, 
uh, video I was just watching recently, uh, one of the TED Talks videos uh, with, um, I think, Professor Donnelly from Oxford. Uh, and he was pointing out some of the problems with using statistics with, uh, with juries. Uh, and it's, uh, just because you can prove one thing uh, doesn't necessarily mean that the next leap uh, that you make logically is also just statistically sound. Uh, and it's something uh, that I think um, Google is going to be best pressed to, to look at is, um, you know, damage control on whatever evidence that uh, uh, Viacom is going to be able to get out of this user data that they're going to be able to collect and use. Lauren, do you think that there will be a repeat of uh, what we saw with RIAA and in, in suing grandmas and just about everybody else that uh, violated copyrights? I mean, now that Viacom's got this or will soon get this information, will it allow them to sue the copyrighted uh, violators? Well, I, I, I think that, um, you know, based on my understanding of everything that's gone on in this case, I think that it's pretty clear that um, Viacom does not anticipate using this data in that way. So um, in terms of the stipulation that they agreed to, uh, Google's going to turn over the information, but attached to uh, unique identifiers that are created just for this exercise. And then part of the stipulation is that Viacom agrees not to try to reverse engineer that to figure out who these people are. Um, there also was concern that because this is a stipulation, it could be overruled by another stipulation down the line. And um, Viacom has uh, agreed in writing to actually notice EFF 14 days in advance of any change in the stipulation so that EFF could have an opportunity to raise um, uh, additional privacy concerns. So I think um, one of the things that, you know, really creates the most protection for users in this particular case is that both parties really don't have an interest in this becoming the locus of the big privacy debate on this particular question. Um, I think one of the things that's still open in this lawsuit is the is whether Google is going to have to turn over identifying information about uh, YouTube use by its own employees. And so the parties have actually only stipulated to non-Google or YouTube employees, and they're still negotiating about what's going to happen with regard to um, employee information, um, which I would argue is also covered under the Video Privacy Protection Act. So I don't think we are anytime soon going to see any relinquishment in the efforts by the um, content industries to try to track down copyright infringers and, you know, go after them. Um, I think it's really their most powerful deterrent to copyright infringement um, that they have right now, unfortunately, or at least they believe that it is. Um, but I just don't think that the information that's turned over as part of this litigation is going to be um, used as fodder for that that other exercise. Well, we're about out of time on the program, but uh, as we always like to do on Lawyer to Lawyer, we give our guests the, the final word uh, and give us their uh, final thoughts. And uh, as you're doing that, if you'd like to also tell our listeners how they can find out more about you or get in touch with you, uh, Kevin Thompson, let's start with you, your final thoughts on this. Well, 
I think uh, uh, that it's, it's great that um, the Viacom and Google have agreed to uh, this use of the data for this particular case. Uh, I think we're only one case away from uh, the user data becoming relevant. If the users themselves were the defendants in the case, uh, like they are in the RIAA file sharing cases, uh, then, you know, the user data would be relevant, and I think Google might then be required to turn it over, like just like any other ISP would. Um, and uh, so I, I believe, you know, we're uh, just, just because it's, it's uh, not relevant to this case to have all the, the data out uh, doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, um, you know, this issue has been resolved once and for all. So I think that's a concern down the road. Um, but, um, you know, I think... Um, uh, that's all I really have to say in terms of final thoughts. Uh, uh, if uh, people want to discuss this further, um, I'm sure there's a few posts on my blog at cyberlawcentral.com, or uh, you could also email me through my firm website, uh, davismcgrath.com. Thanks, Kevin. Lauren Gelman, your final thoughts. I believe that this question about whether IP addresses are um, personally identifiable information or not is a terribly important question that is going to have to be answered and um, whether because it comes up in so many areas of of cyber law and I think you know I would encourage your the audience to to look out for those um, because those are really going to make a big difference in how users use the internet and what the sort of advertising funding model for this publicly accessible Internet is. Um, my, uh, the website for the Center for Internet and Society is cyberlaw.stanford.edu, and you can find out lots of information about lots of different projects that the center is working on. And um, anyone is welcome to contact me at my email address, gelman at stanford.edu. That's G-E-L-M-A-N at stanford.edu. Well, Kevin and Lauren, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, that about does it for Lawyer to Lawyer this week. Remember to uh, our listeners that you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer programs at www.legaltalknetwork.com. And, Bob, thanks for being here along with our guests. We also can find all the Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. I look forward to talking to you next week, Craig. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.